Welcome to your weekly constitutional, underwritten by the Robert H. Smith Center for the Constitution at James Madison's historic home, Montpelier. Your host is Professor Stuart Harris, who teaches constitutional law at the Duncan School of Law of Lincoln Memorial University. Sometimes it's interesting to think of the Constitution in geographical terms. Broadly speaking, it only applies here in the United States, and it only protects us against governmental actions. But what about particular places like military bases or prisons or schools? Those all three have something in common. They are authoritarian environments. Well, today we're not going to talk so much about military bases or prisons, but we are going to talk about schools where students are subject to the control of their elders and sometimes are disciplined. But does that mean they have no rights? Can schools simply search their stuff without a warrant? Can schools paddle them using great big sticks? Can schools suppress their free speech rights? All fascinating stuff. And Justin Driver is going to tell us all about it. My name is Justin Driver. I am a law professor at the University of Chicago, and I've just published my first book called The Schoolhouse Gate, Public Education, the Supreme Court, and the Battle for the American Mind. Well, that sounds <laughs> pretty portentous, especially that last part of the title. Is it really a battle over the American mind? It is a battle uh, over the American mind. I know it sounds a bit overwrought, uh, but the truth is that the Supreme Court speaks about these issues involving students' rights in that register, dating back to a Supreme Court decision from the 1940s where students were required to pledge allegiance to the American flag. Supreme Court in a decision called Barnett invalidated that practice and said that it's especially imperative that uh, constitutional rights are recognized within the school because if we don't do so there, then we risk transforming constitutional rights into mere platitudes, and we also risk strangling the free mind at its source, it says. So, and I think there's a lot of truth uh, to that statement. Justin, you've mentioned my very favorite decision in all of Supreme Court history. Uh, I think that uh, Justice Jackson's ringing language in that particular uh, decision about there being no fixed star in our constellation uh, and no orthodoxy that any official can can uh, declare, I think that's got to be one of the most noble sentiments I've ever seen in the Supreme Court canon. That is one of my favorite sentences in the entirety of the U.S. reports. Mm -hmm. It says... If there's one fixed star in our constitutional constellation, it is that no official high or petty shall prescribe what shall be orthodox. And what's so beautiful about that sentence, in my view, is that it emerges in the context of a case about, in effect, patriotism. Mm -hmm. And when Jackson speaks about the fixed star, many people have suggested that he is appealing to a sense of patriotism on behalf of his readers, uh, the fixed star being associated with the stars and stripes. And so what he's saying in many respects is that it is un-American to require young children to pledge allegiance to the American flag. And it's worth saying that he issues this decision on behalf of the court in 1943 at the height of World War II when patriotic sentiment is running incredibly high. And so this is a testament to the way that the Supreme Court can vindicate minority rights, uh, even in the face of uh, widespread and intense opposition. And indeed, it was a reversal of a similar decision that had been announced just a few years earlier. That's exactly right. That was the Gobitis decision from 1940, and that controversy is how I open my book. Uh, Justice Frankfurter wrote the opinion for the court upholding a flag requirement statute, and we should say that this is difficult for Jehovah's Witnesses because they understand that as a violation of their religious faith. There's passage in the Bible that prohibits worshiping graven images, and they regard this as a graven image. And so Justice Frankfurter writes an opinion for the court upholding these sorts of requirements, meaning that school districts can expel Jehovah's Witness students for refusing to salute. And he says, if we were to get involved in this area, then we would uh, turn the Supreme Court of the United States into a school board for the nation. Mm -hmm. This is supposed to be a horrific thought. 
And that was emblematic of uh, deep hesitation on the part of courts to get involved with schools. The intuition was they're judges, uh, they are not teachers, and they don't have any real expertise in this realm. And that's the view that Justice Jackson uh, repudiates just three years later when he says, we cannot, because of uh, sort of weak assessments of our competence, shirk our constitutional responsibility to uh, vindicate uh, rights where they are implicated. And indeed, they are implicated in schoolhouses, just as they are in the wider society, because uh, little people are citizens, too. Yes, yes, that's exactly right. The Supreme Court of the United States has articulated a whole host of constitutional rights since that first major move in Barnett in 1943. And so now students have foundational free speech rights. They have rights thinking about criminal procedure with respect to the Fourth Amendment and the Fifth Amendment. And of course, the Equal Protection Clause, Brown versus Board of Education and racial integration, religion, thinking about free exercise and also the Establishment Clause. Uh, So there really is a whole body of constitutional law that governs students uh, when they are in school, and they have different constitutional rights when they are in the public park across the street after school. And so that's the major goal for my book, is to render the origins of these constitutional rights in a clear way, uh, identify the contours of these rights, uh, and then also offer my view as to how the rights should shift going forward. I was, before I went to uh, law school, I thought I was going to be a public school teacher, and so that's one of the major audiences for my book. I, when I worked in a public school, I had only a dim sense as to what these rights actually were, and so I think that many teachers are curious about these foundational cases, and I try to explain it in a way that is, again, accessible to non-lawyers. I, one of the goals of the project is to democratize constitutional law. Absolutely. Well, Justin, you mentioned your own background, and I have to say it's fascinating. Uh, you've got a couple of degrees that point toward a teaching career, but then you decided to go off and be a Marshall Scholar, and then you came back and went to law school, and then you did something that I have to ask you about. How in the world did you manage to clerk for not just one, but two Supreme Court justices? Yeah, so that was an opportunity that arose. I was a law clerk to Justice O'Connor when she was a retired justice. And the tradition is that if you're with a retired justice, that you also spend time with an active justice. And so simultaneously, I was with Justice Breyer. Um, And working for those two people very much influenced my selecting this book. Uh, Justice O'Connor, it was her very first year as a retired justice, and she focused on promoting civics education. She was deeply concerned about the lack of understanding of even basic ideas about our constitutional structure, including the inability of many students to name the three branches of government and understanding notions of separations of powers. And so she promoted civics education. And my book before, before we leave that, she, she's founded a, an organization called iCivics, and she's worked with a lot of people that I know who are active in this. And in fact, that's the very reason for this radio show. So good for Justice O'Connor and good for you. But back, back now. It is uh, incredibly uh, important work and uh, you know, a testament to her character for saying she wanted to take on a new challenge uh, after she wrapped up her time at the court. And my book is designed to sort of carry that torch as well in the sense that it's driven by the intuition that if you explain students' rights where the students uh, are uh, understand these things intimately about the free speech rights that they have, um, that that will light a fire that um, they will be able to carry on into other areas. And so focusing on students' rights, it will serve as a gateway to larger issues about constitutional law. I fear sometimes that separation of powers might feel a little abstract uh, to students, but thinking about free speech rights or uh, thinking about uh, search and seizure, this is where they live. And so I hope that that will inspire something. So that's the Justice O'Connor piece of it. And then Justice Breyer, my time with him also uh, made a, a big difference in this book in the sense that two of the major cases that I write about uh, in the book were decided when I was a law clerk for him. And 
those were a, an important free speech case. That's uh, formal name is Bong Hits for Jesus, but uh, <laughs> pardon me, that's the informal name. That's the in, yeah, that's the informal name. Yeah, we'll get to that one in a minute. Yeah, and then the other one was a case called Parents Involved in Community Schools. Uh, For Seattle? And th- that was a case that, in many ways, was about the meaning of Brown versus Board of Education in the modern era. Right. Now, we'll get back to both of those, and those are both very important. And you were there at a very important time. But I have to say that you almost got a Supreme Court justice trifecta because before you went to the Supreme Court, you clerked for a fellow on the D.C. Circuit by the name of Merrick Garland. Yes. Uh, Judge Garland, I was very lucky to land a clerkship with him. Uh, he was a wonderful judge. I learned a tremendous amount from him uh, during that time. And uh, for some of the time that I wrote this book, I really uh, did believe that Judge Garland was going to become Justice Garland. And the fact that that did not happen uh, is a real source of uh, shame uh, in, in, my, in my view, and I know that many Americans uh, believe that to be the case as well. He's a, he's a really wonderful man and a dear friend. He seems to be. He seems to be. All righty then. Let's get back to your book then. It's arranged by topic. We can't discuss all of them, so pick out some of your more interesting topics and uh, how they impact the rights of students. Well, boy, I care about a lot of topics in the book, but if there's any single one that I'm most excited about and that may be of particular interest to your listeners, it's the issue of corporal punishment. Can I tell you about why that uh, interests me so much? Absolutely. So the Supreme Court had an opportunity to rein in corporal punishment on the basis of some truly egregious facts. Um, I'll tell you about the facts. Um, James Ingram was a middle school student in Florida in the 1970s, and he was at a school assembly, and he's on stage with some of his buddies. And uh, some school administrators tell him to depart the stage, and he does so with an insufficient sense of urgency. And for that pretty classically adolescent misbehavior, he is summoned to the principal's office where he's supposed to receive five licks with a two-foot-long wooden paddle. And when his turn arises, he protests his innocence, and two assistant principals then grab him and bend him over the principal's desk. And he receives not five licks, but 20 licks. And this beating is so savage that he goes to see a doctor who prescribes cold compresses, pain relievers, sleeping pills, laxatives. He returns to the hospital three days later, and I found a doctor's notes that say that he has a bruise that's six inches in diameter, and it's tender, purplish, swollen, and also oozing fluid. And I should say that this is part of a larger reign of terror that existed at James Ingram School. The name of the school was Charles R. Drew Middle School. Students were beaten for sitting in the wrong seat, for wearing the wrong socks, and sometimes there were just these mass paddlings. And you would think that you'd be hard-pressed to identify um, you know, a more compelling set of circumstances to mount a challenge under the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. Mm-hmm. But the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 to four decision, rejected that claim, Justice Powell writing for the court, and he said this doesn't even qualify as punishment for purposes of the Eighth Amendment. Oh, my. So I care about this issue so much uh, because it's not merely a historical artifact. There are now 18 states that permit corporal punishment, and, but that overstates its prevalence in some ways because just five states account for more than 70% of the instances of corporal punishment, and it will come as no surprise to many of your listeners that students of color receive a disproportionate share of corporal punishment. And so if I have any single hope for my book, it's that it will elevate the salience of corporal punishment, and the Supreme Court of the United States will revisit this issue because I fear that the jurisdictions that retain this practice at this late date are not going to abandon it on their own. Bend over and grab the far edge of the chair. You know, I would never want to intimidate students, uh, but there again, if you show them the paddle, then, you know, they know, oh, he does have one. 
you know, they may think about doing something, but when they think about corporal punishment, that fear will make them say, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. Feet apart, look straight ahead. Take the form of paddling. With a teacher or administrator using a paddle like this one, opponents say it's a form of abuse, but supporters disagree. You'll get six. Count them out loud. Most Tennessee school districts still use the form of discipline on, quote, a very limited basis. One. In the 22 states where in-school corporal punishment is legal in the U.S., regulation isn't uniform. It can change from one Two. district to the next. Three. Our community watchdog investigation identified several Northeast Tennessee schools that are paddling one particular type of student Four. at a higher rate than his or her classmates. Five. What's especially troubling, a disproportionate number of minorities and kids with disabilities were on the receiving end of the corporal punishment. Six. So when you compound that with students that are already have obstacles to getting a good education, like African-American students or special education students, that really creates a double-edged sword. We have no plans to end corporal punishment. It's your weekly constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris, and I'm having a perfectly delightful conversation with Justin Driver, a professor at the University of Chicago, who's written a new book called The Schoolhouse Gate. After the break, we'll speak some more with Justin. Stick around. You're listening to your weekly constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris. Uh, this week, my guest is Justin Driver, a professor at the University of Chicago. Justin argues in his new book, The Schoolhouse Gate, that the Supreme Court is not doing enough to protect the constitutional rights of students. We were just talking about corporal punishment and how the court has allowed it to continue in our public schools. And a number of states embrace the concept and continue to do so even in 2019. The practice is most common in five states, Alabama, Arkansas, Arkansas, Georgia, Mississippi, and Texas. Sounds like something out of Dickens. Yeah. yeah it's just a really archaic practice, and I wanted to speak about it in part because I think a lot of people are unaware that corporal punishment persists. It doesn't happen in big cities, generally speaking. It happens in more remote uh, parts. And so these are isolated areas. And so people are just unaware of this. And I do think that the Supreme Court will need to get involved. Let's go through that for just a minute. The Eighth Amendment does prohibit uh, cruel and unusual punishment. Um, is that the only constitutional provision that could be used to get rid of corporal punishment? I mean, it does seem to be applicable. It's the government. The government is punishing somebody. It's not a criminal punishment. But I don't see any limitation to criminal punishments in the Eighth Amendment. Well, that's one of the hopes that I have, is that it will be possible to cobble together a coalition, even on the current Supreme Court, of liberals and the libertarian-inflected vision of constitutional law that is ascendant in some right-leaning circles to abandon this practice. You know, Now, Justice Kavanaugh, during his confirmation hearings, proclaimed himself to be a textualist. And exactly as you suggested, the text of the Eighth Amendment goes to cruel and unusual punishment, and there's nothing uh, tying it to a criminal conviction. And so uh, I am hopeful that both libertarians and textualists will read the Ingram versus Wright decision and view it as severely in need of correction. Yeah, and Eighth Amendment jurisprudence is probably one of those areas in the Constitution where the courts have been most open to the idea of evolving standards of decency, at least within the, the, the death penalty uh, debate. Um, so maybe they'd be willing to think about evolving standards of uh, pedagogy um, uh, when, when, when they uh, consider this again. 
Well, it's worth saying that the legislative landscape has changed dramatically since the 1970s when the court considered this issue. Initially, there were only two states that had abolished corporal punishment at that time in schools, and now, obviously, the clear majority of states have done so. And, um, yeah, I do think that its place in culture has shifted dramatically over the last 40 years. Public school students are the sole remaining group of people in American society who governmental actors can strike with impunity. Um, That is a stunning fact. You can no longer use corporal punishment in the form of you know, the sh- what used to be called the strap in prisons that mm-hmm. was, uh, you know, gotten rid of by the federal courts in the late 60s. Arkansas was the last state to feature that practice. Uh, and so many people thought that uh, if you can't hit people who have been convicted of crimes, then there's no way in the world that you're going to be able to hit public school students who have been convicted of doing nothing whatsoever. But uh, the Supreme Court of the United States has refused to get involved, even though there have been a number of uh, egregious instances of corporal punishment, even in, in recent years. Yeah, you can't hit a military recruit, you can't hit a prisoner in a prison, but you can hit a kid. And often, as you point out, with uh, not just your bare hand, but with a, a paddle, and that means basically a piece of wood or some other hard material. In fact, don't you discuss also a even potentially darker aspect of this is when male uh, principals are smacking female students on the rear end. That's exactly right. Uh, there was a case from the early aughts where a student called Jessica Serafin left her uh, campus in order to buy a breakfast burrito. She arrived on campus and then walked across the street and returned uh, for her first period class, and uh, the principal summoned her and said she violated the closed campus rule. She's an 18-year-old young woman just you know, days away from graduating from high school, and he says he's going to hit her with old thunder, uh, the nickname bestowed upon the four-foot-long wooden paddle, and she says that she'd rather withdraw. Nevertheless, this is a man in his mid-30s, and he has this 18-year-old woman assume the position, which, of course, means bending at the waist with one's buttocks exposed. And many people have suggested uh, that there is a uh, sexual dynamic at work in uh, such instances, uh, at least oftentimes, and that should be particularly distressing to those of us who are uh, concerned with its elimination. Yeah, that suggests that a 14th Amendment challenge might also work, at least when it comes to racial disparities or with uh, things that seem to be sexist or misogynist. So maybe there are several different tacks that a, a challenger could take when it comes to corporal punishment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that seems right to me. Okay. Well, that's a disturbing area where students don't seem to have the rights we assume they did. Let's uh, talk about some other areas. Okay, another area that we should focus on is the issue of free speech. The foundational speech uh, issue in this area is a case called Tinker versus Des Moines Independent Community School District. This is a case that originates in the 1960s in Des Moines, Iowa, of course. There are students who want to wear black armbands to school in protest of the Vietnam War. School officials get wind of this plan, which is in December 1965, and they say, oh, no, that's too hot of a topic. Uh, This is before the rise of mass mobilization against the Vietnam War. And um, they say a graduate of Des Moines High School died over in Vietnam, and his buddies are still in the school. And if you all wear black armbands in protest of the Vietnam War, they are going to regard you as dishonoring his memory and indeed his sacrifice. And so in order to preserve calm at the school, you cannot wear the black armbands. And the question is, does this violate the students' speech rights? And Justice Fortas wrote a magnificent opinion where he gives me the title for my book. He says, it can, it can hardly be argued that students shed their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse gate. And uh, Another ringing I, phrase, one of my favorites yeah, ab- as well. A- absolutely. It's a really important phrase, and as important as the phrase is that he says that students 
speaking to one another on the issue of the day is not a distraction. Instead, it is a vital part of the educational process itself. Um, he says that ours is a relatively open and often disputatious society, and it would be odd if schools didn't have that same character. And so I view the Tinker decision as being a wonderful step forward. Uh, it was far from obvious that uh, the case was going to come out that way, but there was a problem in the sense that the test that Justice Fortas articulated in Tinker uh, it, it's, it, it, it had some problems. It's, the test is um, if the school officials reasonable, have a reasonable fear of a substantial disruption that will flow from the speech, then it's permissible to punish the student for the speech. And the problem with that is that it can be understood to read in a uh, heckler's veto. Yes, this yes, indeed. Ice. But before we get on to what happened after Tinker was decided, let me just uh, mention that please, we have we've please, actually yes. we've interviewed Mary Beth Tinker on the show uh, a couple of years ago. And if people are interested, then go to our podcast site or iTunes or Spotify and they can look up the episode, uh, The First Amendment and the 13 year old girl. Um, and it's a, it's a compelling, compelling story. But the sad part is that uh, that was sort of the high watermark of free speech in schools, wasn't it? It absolutely was. Uh, the Supreme Court heard, uh, you know, uh, they've decided a few different cases afterward, and uh, in all three of the major cases, the court has, in effect, articulated an exception uh, to Tinker. And so um, it has been eroded somewhat over time. Uh, Wasn't it Hazelwood? Was it 85 when they said that if they've got a legitimate pedagogical purpose, they can regulate student speech? That, that's right. The Hazelwood versus Kuhlmeyer decision is one that involves a school newspaper where a high school principal uh, deleted two articles, one of which dealt with uh, teen pregnancy and you know, uh, teenage mothers, uh, and the other of which dealt with uh, divorce, and uh, the principal thought these hot, these topics were simply too hot for the high school newspaper, and in his capacity as editor-in-chief of the newspaper, decided to, in effect, spike the articles, and the Supreme Court of the United States did uphold that decision. It's an interesting lesson for school administrators in the sense that uh, suppression often leads to higher-profile outlets uh, mm -hmm. in the sense that in this particular instance, the articles did not run in the school newspaper, but they did run in the St. Louis Globe uh, <laughs> under, the, under the headline, Too Hot for Hazelwood. Uh, right. So, you know, in an effort to silence people, you end up giving them a megaphone sometimes. Yeah, that, I, that, I always saw that as almost effectively an overruling um, of uh, the Tinker case, and it, it, it really is upsetting because, of course, that's a, a loophole you can drive a truck through. And there's been a, a great deal of suppression, and most of it we never even hear about throughout the school system. And it, and it goes against the entire focus of the Tinker decision because, of course, one of the most important things you can think or you can teach students is how to think and debate critically. I think that the principal uh, responded very poorly here. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, in my view, the idea that um, you know school newspapers shouldn't be used for debates about teenage pregnancy. Many of the women who were young women who were quoted in the article said things like they didn't think they get, could get pregnant on the first time that they had sex, and they didn't think it would happen to them. And boy, I think you'd be hard-pressed to identify a more relevant topic. The principal's justification for killing the article was this didn't provide them with sufficient anonymity because there were too many revealing care, uh, sort of uh, you know, uh, attributes in the article itself. But there are certainly ways that you could anonymize them to the extent that that's the real concern. And similarly, with respect fact, uh, divorce for families, as you suggested, this is in the 1980s at a time yeah. when divorce rates are surging, and there are these, you know, heartbreaking quotations where people, young students said, I thought it was my fault that my parents were getting divorced, and so I think it would have been incredibly advantageous uh, for these articles to run, and uh, the principal's justifications really uh, are, are unpersuasive. At the same time, I, would th I think it's overstated to contend that, hey, Hazelwood versus Kuhlmeyer amounts to an, uh, a reversal of Tinker uh, because, 
Tinker involved students speaking, no doubt, in their individual capacity, and uh, the dynamic in Hazelwood versus Kohlmeyer was more complicated. Nothing would prohibit the students from having what used to be called an underground newspaper, right, where they mm-hmm. are speaking for themselves and able to uh, produce these sorts of things. So, uh, you know, I, I do think that the court has found a number of distinctions in the Hazelwood versus Kuhlmeyer decision, the Frazier decision, and of course, one we're going to talk about in a little while, the Morris versus Frederick. Well, let's talk about that. But before we do, I want to note that both Tinker and Hazelwood involve some of the, the best and most conscientious and smartest students in their respective schools. But the one we're going to talk, talk about here in a minute, the bong hits for Jesus case, and um, maybe didn't. <laughs> Tell, that's the one that was decided when you were there. Tell us about that one. Sure. So Joseph Frederick is a high school senior in Juneau, Alaska, and he uh, drives near school but not on the campus, parks his car, and uh, gets out and um, stations himself across the street from the high school. Um, the Olympic torch is making its way down Glacier Avenue in Juneau, Alaska, and a number of teachers have allowed their students to win- witness this momentous occasion by leaving the school in order to go across the street. And so Joseph Frederick joins the assembled students and unfurls a 14-foot-long banner that reads, Bong Hits for Jesus. <laughs> Which means what? <laughs> That's exactly right. That is a fine question. What right. in the world does that mean? Joseph Frederick says that he did this in order to garner the attention of, uh, you know, the cameras, and uh, he was simply trying to exercise his free speech rights. He disavowed the idea that it had anything to do with uh, promoting drugs or even Jesus, uh, the religious aspect of it. Mm-hmm. That was a mistake, by the way. If he had it to do over again, it would have been wiser to say that he was trying to engage in some larger political or uh, religious debate. It would have anyway, been better so for him, yes. It would have, he would, it would, their speech would have more likely been protected. Mm-hmm. Chief Justice Roberts writes the opinion for the court that finds that um, the principal's uh, actions, which involved uh, suspending him from school for a number of days in light of the uh, sign, um, Chief Justice Roberts says that if the principal reasonably believes that the speech in question is designed to promote illicit drug use, then it's permissible to punish the student for that speech. That's highly unusual from a First Amendment perspective. That's a viewpoint a- discrimination. That's exactly right. I mean, that's the, that's the most egregious type of, 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 of regulation of speech that the, 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 the court ever even considers. And it, it's, it's almost an absolute that you cannot discriminate on the basis of viewpoint. That's exactly right. The intuition here is that the marketplace of ideas functions best where all sides of a debate are allowed to be aired. And so if you permit anti-drug speech, then you also need to permit pro-drug speech. But Chief Justice Roberts doesn't view it that way, and he says, in effect, that drugs are a really serious problem in American society. And, uh, you know, the schools need to be able to do whatever they can in order to handle this issue. Justice Stevens wrote a marvelous dissenting mm-hmm. opinion in this case. Um, Justice Stevens was quite elderly at the time, and I'm happy to report that he is more elderly still today. Yeah. Um, and he says in, this, uh, in his dissent, I can remember the days of prohibition. And he says... Why should we not view young Joseph Frederick as attempting to participate, however inarticulately, in a growing debate about the legality of marijuana? And the force of the analogy to prohibition is that it means what is illegal today can become legal tomorrow. And how does that process work but for people announcing their views? And, of course, we're nearly 12 years away since Justice Stevens wrote those words, and given the transformation in the legal landscape with respect to marijuana uh, over the last 12 years, it seems to me that Justice Stevens's opinion assumes only added force. Of course, it's been a matter of great public debate, and by coincidence, we've covered that debate recently and over the years as well. 
frequently. And if people are interested and they go to our podcast site and look for Marijuana Update 2019, it was just recently posted on our podcast site. But before we leave um, the Bong Hits for Jesus case, just a couple of observations. First, personally, um, I, I just remember this for the first time. It was the 1970s. I was in high school. I was in a public speaking class. And we had a bit of a debate over marijuana, and the teacher didn't like the things I said, and she almost kicked me out of class. And I got, golly, if she had, then I could have been the plaintiff in a lawsuit. I missed my opportunity all the way back in the 70s. The other observation is more significant, and that is that Morse versus Frederick involved the regulation of off-campus speech. This guy was not technically at a school function. He had been released from school with the idea that he would go across the street and he would observe the Olympic torch. But this raises a whole big area, the new frontier. What, to what extent can school administrators regulate uh, social media postings by students? Yeah, that's a really important question. The court in the Bong Hits for Jesus case did... Uh, reach out to say that, in effect, this was a school activity, uh, and therefore the governing rules of student speech applied. Many people uh, disagreed with that assessment, and that was one of the reasons that people were surprised that the Supreme Court of the United States decided to grant cert in that case, right? They didn't need to hear it, um, and people thought, well, this is these are bizarre facts, as we said a moment mm-hmm. ago. What in the world does Bong Hits for Jesus mean? Was he even on school grounds at the time? Uh, there are these real uh, major and live issues about uh, student speech, and many people thought that they would have taken a case out of that realm, including most prominently exactly as you suggested a moment ago, online speech. Um, When I talk to teachers and principals about these issues, they consistently tell me that this is the area where they need the most guidance because the Tinker case, of course, says uh, can hardly be argued that students shed their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse gate. But what about when students are at home in their bedrooms typing out messages on Facebook or, you know, the various other platforms that students use? The lower courts have been really divided on these issues, and many lower court decisions have not done an adequate job at protecting student speech that is uttered uh, outside of the schoolhouse gate. And I find that particularly distressing because uh, if the speech outside uh, can be regulated by schools, then it seems to me that the schoolhouse gate is extended in a virtually limitless direction. Yeah, I mean, you can think about a kid who's maybe home on, in the middle of the summer and he posts something about his principal or something or about a teacher or about another student and then goes back to school in September and is all of a sudden suspended or otherwise punished because of something he did entirely outside of the schoolhouse gate in, in a physical sense. That's right. You're listening to your weekly constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris. And in case you're just joining us, I'll mention that my guest is Justin Driver of the University of Chicago, who's written a fascinating new book called The Schoolhouse Gate. Stick around. It's your weekly constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris. This week, my guest is Justin Driver, professor at the University of Chicago, who argues in his new book, The Schoolhouse Gate, that the Supreme Court has not protected some very important constitutional rights of public school students. Just before the break, we were talking about the First Amendment and how the the court has failed to protect students' free speech rights. One area of particular concern, an area the court really hasn't addressed yet, is the issue of how much school administrators can regulate students' speech outside of school, and particularly student speech on social media. There's an important case from the Second Circuit involving a student named Avery Doninger, 
and she was a student body official, and uh, she was elected to the student government, and she wanted the school to host a battle of the bands and felt as though the school officials were putting her off and refusing to engage her. And so eventually her frustration grew, and she wrote on her own sort of personal blog that people should contact the school administrators uh, in order to let their voices be known, and she listed the school's phone number and provided an email address. And what she wrote in her personal blog was not to contact the school administrators in the central office. Instead, she said to contact the douchebags in oh the my. central office. And uh, the school officials didn't like that, and they said uh, that she was going to be punished and that they would refuse to allow her to run for re-election to the student body. <laughs> and the Second Circuit in the you know, federal court said that uh, this discipline, uh, in many respects, wasn't that bad because uh, she wasn't suspended. Uh, all, she, all, she, all that happened was she was prohibited from running for re-election. But when you step back and think about it, uh, you know, she's used her voice uh, to encourage people to contact the government in the form of the public school and let their voices be known. And the penalty for that is that she's not allowed to, you know, uh, you know, sort of lead her classmates. And so I think the Second Circuit made a mistake there and allowed that word, which is, has a strong generational component to it, um, where many youngsters don't associate it with anything literal. Um, and that... Uh, you know, clouded the judgment of the D.C. Circuit and allowed an instance of you know, real suppression to, to happen. It's very, very troubling. And again, a, a personal connection to this. My younger son, Benjamin, was in his last year of high school and had been a vocal critic of, of the school administration. He, he didn't use that language, but he was a vocal critic. And then he was uh, he was the favored person to be the student body president until they told him that he was <laughs> ineligible, <laughs> and he had a writing campaign, and those ballots were never released. <laughs> and that was as much as we laugh about it now. At the time, he was very angry, and his not only his right to to represent his his classmates, but their right to have a representative of their choice. That's exactly right. And the facts of the case that I mentioned a moment ago were even more intense and more troubling than I suggested. In response to the announcement that Avery Doniger was not going to be able to run for re-election, a number of students uh, created T-shirts that said Team Avery on the front mm. and then support free speech at this high school on the back, and they wanted to be able to wear these T-shirts to the assembly where the nominating speeches were going to be delivered, and the school officials were posted outside of oh, the dear. school auditorium and telling students they had to take off the shirts inside of the assembly. I mean... <laughs> And anytime your, uh, you know, your position is you're trying to suppress someone's important core political speech. Yeah, that says like yeah, support free speech. That's a that's a very unattractive. Uh, oh, see, that, those are terrible facts. Terrible facts, indeed. We could talk about it all day, but there's one other subject we definitely have to get to in the limited time remaining to us. What about the Fourth Amendment? What about searches and seizures of student stuff? Yes. Uh, this is an incredibly important issue, including um, the Fourth Amendment of unreasonable searches and seizures. I'm particularly distressed about the way that the court has dealt with suspicionless drug searches. Uh, the major case here involves a student named Lindsay Earls, who grew up in Oklahoma, and she remembers being in her history class and being summoned to the girls' restroom where uh, en masse young women are uh, in the restroom and uh, she goes into a stall and remembers a teacher being posted outside listening for the telltale sounds of urination. Oh my. She produces a vessel that the teacher inspects for warmth in order to make sure that it's body temperature and then holds it up to the light in order to inspected for color and clarity, and she is uh, doing this as a result of participating in extracurricular activities. She was a member of the debate club, 
And the question is, does this violate the Fourth Amendment? You would think, under traditional Fourth Amendment purposes, that this would be unconstitutional because it amounts to a dragnet search, where, in effect, uh, the government doesn't have any individualized suspicion of wrongdoing on anyone's part. It's just trying to swoop up and discover whatever it can find. And we dislike this under the Fourth Amendment because of the intrusions on individual privacy are so widespread. That's the reason we have a Fourth Amendment was because of those general warrants that were issued by the British. That's exactly right. Uh, And nevertheless, the Supreme Court of the United States in the Earls decision found that it did not violate the Constitution. Um, There was uh, no particular drug problem at this school. Nevertheless, the Supreme Court said drugs are a major problem in American society and in American schools. Therefore, school officials need to be able to have the latitude to do these sorts of searches if they feel like they are best. And this is a real retreat uh, from uh, giving any real constitutional meaning to the Fourth Amendment in the public schools. And uh, these sorts of suspicionless drug searches have proliferated in the years after the Earl's decision. And again, this is an area that liberals should be able to join with libertarians. And I did find some libertarians, even at the time of the Earl's decision, suggesting that this was an abomination in that the government is intruding. So I'm hopeful that the Supreme Court will take another crack at that and rethink that wrongheaded decision. Well, if they can make you pee in a cup, they can also look in your locker with impunity, can't they? Or your backpack, or any of those things. Well, you know, you kind of wonder not just about the intrusion, which is significant enough, the infringement of constitutional rights of these young citizens, but what are we teaching them? Are we? Basically, it sounds to me like the schoolhouse is becoming more and more like a police state. Is that what we want to teach our children? That that's how American society is supposed to run? I do worry about the lessons that students are drawing from their first sustained exposure to governmental officials in the form of the public school. Um, You know, it is a uh, difficult thing to feel like you are uh, subject to deep surveillance. And of course, at many of our urban schools, there are police officers, these things called school resource officers, Mm -hmm. which is uh, an Orwellian term if ever I've heard one where you have uniformed police officers who are posted there and often turning matters of school dispute into police matters. And people use that phrase, the school-to-prison pipeline, Mm -hmm. and the school resource officer is uh, an essential component in that school-to-prison pipeline. So I find... Uh, a lot of reason for uh, distress in this area, and um, I'm hopeful that it will improve going forward. Well, I certainly share your concerns. Um, We have to note before we leave here that there's at least one justice on the court, currently on the court, and he was there when you were there, Justice Thomas, who doesn't believe that students pretty much have any constitutional rights, does he? That's right. He is an originalist, and in the Bong Hits for Jesus case, He wrote a uh, concurring opinion where he said not only should Joseph Frederick have no speech rights, uh, that student speech should uh, should deserve no protection whatsoever, he says. In effect, the good old days, teachers commanded and students obeyed. Uh, And we need to get back to that, Justice Thomas suggested. Interestingly, his fellow originalist on the court at the time Justice Scalia did not join that opinion, and that raises interesting questions about when originalists are dedicated to vindicating the original understanding no matter what, and when they are willing to sit by precedents and not question them. Yes, indeed. Well, that brings up, of course, the issue of Justice Scalia's replacement. Uh, what, what is your sense about both of the new justices, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh? Are they going to protect these uh, the school rights? Or are they going to continue on the course the court's taken since 1985? It's a good question. Uh, the best answer would be that it's too early to say with real certainty. Um, uh, when 
Justice Gorsuch was Judge Judge Gorsuch on the Tenth Circuit. He did write an opinion that I mention in the book that I admire. Um, There was a student who was in gym class in New Mexico who was belching repeatedly. And, uh, again, in a distressingly common feature these days, the police were called in in order to handle this matter. And the student was cuffed and put in a police cruiser. And, uh, again, gym class, mind you. Uh, And uh, Judge Gorsuch did write an opinion saying that these actions... Uh, violated clearly established constitutional law, and he wrote a really uh, nice opinion where he does quote Dickens, actually, where huh. Dickens was once said, you know, the law is an ass, uh, yes. an idiot, it says. And uh, Gorsuch says, my colleagues today cannot like the decision they reach because this is an outrage. Uh, but in this particular case, I don't believe that the law is quite as much a ass, a idiot, as they suggest. Um, and so maybe there's some hope there, you know. Um, one of the dominant trends of the Supreme Court over the last few decades has been GOP-appointed justices drifting leftward over time. Uh, that would be true with respect to Justice O'Connor, my old boss, Justice Kennedy, who just left the court, uh, Justice Souter, Justice Stevens, Justice Blackman. The list go on and on. So they start out relatively conservative and then do drift leftward over time. Now, one reason that that is unlikely to happen for both Gorsuch and Kavanaugh is that unlike the people that I just mentioned, including O'Connor and Souter, uh, they both have experience working in a Republican presidential administration. And that suggests uh, that they are true believers and are battle-tested and are not going to uh, drift leftward over time. So nevertheless, uh, I think it would be mistaken to say that there is you know, no hope in this area for them to change going forward. I think it's incumbent upon liberals to try to find common ground by appealing to textualism and the libertarian attitudes that some of them have uh, embraced in the, time, uh, in the past. Well, Justin, we'll have to leave it there because we're running out of time. But uh, briefly, your, your, your uh, book is called The Schoolhouse Gate. It's available at our local bookstores, I'm sure, and on Amazon. And do you have a website for it? Uh, I do not. Uh, <laughs> you got to join uh, the 21st century, Justin. I know. I don't. I don't tweet. Uh, I do have an email address. That's as about as modern as I am. Well, if they simply Google the Schoolhouse Gate by Justin Driver, they can find uh, this excellent book, and they can read about more of this themselves. So, thanks very much for speaking with us today. Thank you for taking the time. I really enjoyed our discussion. And that's our show. Thanks so very much to Justin Driver of the University of Chicago. You know, every time I speak to somebody from Chicago, I have a great time. So thanks, Justin, for continuing the streak. And make sure you go out and buy a copy of Justin's new book, The Schoolhouse Gate. Lots of interesting stuff in there. Our executive producer is Wayne Winkler. Our scheduler is Carol Hutchinson. Our distribution engineer is Chad Barrett. Our music is by Hannibal's Elephants. Check them out on SoundCloud. My name is Stuart Harris. And remember, you are a part of the American experiment, even if you're still in school.